What I want to do before I get started on the message is just on an encouraging note here. We had a recent 101 class, uh, an introductory class to this church last Sunday evening. It's a class that we offer about every quarter, about every three months or so. In that class, I just introduce really the foundational truths about the church, who we are, what we are, and why we are here. Give people an opportunity at the end of that uh, that have not yet done so to make a decision to make this their church home, become members here. And we had several people that attended that class and several of them that made decisions to make this their church home. And so as we do each time, I just want to read the names if I butcher your name, I apologize in advance for doing that. But what I'd like you to do is if, you know, many of those were at the first service, but if you're here, I'd just like you to stand as I read your name. Stay standing until I've completed the list, and then we'll welcome you with a cornerstone applause. Justin and Kathy Bender, their children, Dominique, Trevor, Alexis, and Brielle. Jared and Nikki Capon, their children, Logan, Kylie and Hunter, Mary Fishburn, Elizabeth Flory, Rich and Kathy Giesel, Laura Jacko and her children, Caleb Piper and Jonah, Kelly and Sheila King, their children, Victoria and Kenny, Megan Lackey, Joel Lawrence, Rob and Rebecca Lalig and their children, Kelsey and Ethan, Wayne Miller, Melody Painter, Stephen and Elaine Rasher, and their child, Awesome, Naomi Riapel, and her daughter, Haven, Stephen Rosser, Jamie Roosh, Rick and Barbara Suits, Ian and Tamara Wheeler, their children, Harmony, and Jubilant. That's quite a group, huh? Let's just welcome them to Cornerstone Church. Hallelujah. You can be seated. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Last week we covered a section of Scripture at the end of Romans chapter 7 from verses 14 to 25 that I explained to you as one of the great controversial passages of Scripture in the New Testament. And what we did last Sunday morning was we brought really one question to the text and sought to answer that one question. And here is the question. Who is the man of Romans 7? Who is the man of Romans 7? You see, in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, using the personal pronoun I prolifically, writing a story about his own battle with sin. The question is, who is the man of Romans 7? Was it Paul previous to becoming a Christian? Is that the period of his life that he was writing about? Or was it Paul after becoming a Christian, but before he had matured in the Christian life? Or was this actually Paul, the apostle, the great servant of God, 
a mature believer writing about his present-day reality in this battle that he was having with sin. And so what we did, what I tried to do as thoroughly as I had time to do was to show you those three different interpretations of this passage and give you the biblical footing upon which each of them stood, trying to explain their position. And then I concluded by sharing which of those I believed was the accurate, proper interpretation. And here is, again, as a review, what I believe is the accurate interpretation of the man of Romans 7. I believe that Paul, the great apostle, the prolific church planter, the great theologian, the author of Scripture, that he was writing about his present day life as a mature believer as he wrote that letter to the church at Rome saying, not this is who I was before I got saved, not this is who I was as a mature believer, but this is who I am right now here today. That the man of Romans 7, in my conviction, is Paul the mature believer. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just had time to try to treat those different interpretations and give some brief argument on why I lined up where I lined up. What I want to do this morning is I want to continue that and make some clarifying statements because here's what I'm aware of. That it is very possible, it is very easy to listen to that interpretation on a surface level and to draw and to misunderstand it and to quickly draw some wrong conclusions to it. So, just by way of review, let me read the passage again, and then I'll bring some further clarity to what I believe is the right way to understand this incredible section of Scripture. Romans chapter 14, verse 25, Paul wrote, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the question again, who is the man of Romans 7? Paul the unsaved, Paul the immature believer, or Paul the mature apostle writing of his present reality at the time of drafting this letter. And I present to you again this morning that I believe the proper interpretation is that this is none other than Paul, the apostle, the mature believer, writing in the present tense about his reality in that moment. But in light of that, Now let me make some clarifying statements because that could be so easily misunderstood and misapplied. For example, you could potentially hear me say that since this is Paul the mature believer writing, that it is a mature act to do what you do not want or know to be that you know to be wrong and to not do the good that you know that you should that it's mature for you to do that that is not what I am saying that is not what I am saying I am not saying that it is a spiritually mature thing for you and I as followers of Christ to do what we know to be wrong and to not do what we know to be right What I am saying for clarity is what I believe Paul is teaching us here is that this heated battle with sin that he is describing in these verses, a heated battle that he is undergoing as he is writing this, is what a mature believer will face in their life. Just as Paul faced that heated battle with sin as a mature believer, that is going to be true today of the believer, immature and mature. I'm going to take that a step further now for more clarity. I believe, in fact, that you do not, as you grow spiritually, leave behind the battlefield, the daily battlefield with sin. In fact, I believe what happens is that the more that you grow in spiritual maturity, the heat of the battle actually intensifies. It doesn't decrease. And I think that Paul's example here as a mature believer is pointing precisely to that fact that he has not grown beyond the battle in his great spiritual maturity as a seasoned saint. But in fact, what has happened is that he is walking into a more heated battle all the time as he grows in his relationship with Christ.
so that this is true. I believe that the most intense battles with sin are fought by God's greatest saints. Now let me test that statement for a moment. Let's just check that, not with my opinion, but with the authority of this book right here, God's Word. And I would submit to you, first of all, we have already in part done that because the Word of God and the pen of Paul inspired by the Spirit of God to craft this letter to the church at Rome and particularly to craft those last few verses of Romans chapter 7 said, speaking of himself, here is the battle that I fight with sin. And he wrote it in the present tense as a current day reality as he wrote that letter. And he was talking about this heated battle that he continually had with sin. And what was taking place in his life with this battle was that he was not doing the good he knew he should be doing and he continued to do the wrong that he knew from the law of God that he should not be doing. But let's give it another test besides the Apostle Paul. I could give you many. I believe that we could use the life of Abraham. We could use the life of Job. We could use the life of Jacob. We'd use the life of Isaiah. Let me just give you one Old Testament example, David. What were David's credentials, first of all? Let's just establish that. David's credentials. He was the young boy who was the giant slayer. David was the great worshiper of history. David was the writer of the majority of the Psalms. Those songs of worship and prayer to God. David was the great king and leader over God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. David. Oh, David. His greatest credential. He is known in Scripture by what famous line? Can anybody guess? He is the man after God's own heart. I submit to you, that's a mature believer. So let's test my hypothesis with David's life. Not only did David have that incredible list of credentials, not only was he a man after God's own heart, he was also a peeping Tom on the roof of the palace with a vantage point to look down into the courtyards of the bathing beauties around the palace. And that is precisely what he did. And not only did he look, he took the leap into adultery in that situation. And not only did he commit adultery, he tried to weave a web of deception. And not only did he weave a web of deception, but when it did not accomplish his design, he became a murderer of one of his own 
faithful, trusted soldiers fighting for his kingdom. He had him murdered to try to hide his sin. Could David with Paul say, The good that I want to do, I am not getting done. And the evil that I do not want to do, this is what I do. And I'm saying to you from the Word of God that absolutely, yes, the great King David, the man after God's own heart, could craft himself into Romans seven fourteen to 25. Because that is his story as well. And I would just add to that, not with the authority of Scripture, but with the transparency of my own story, that as I have matured in the Christian life, that far too often my story has been Romans 7. 14 to 25. Where I did not do the things that I longed to do and did the very things, the evil that I did not want to do. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we could all see our names written over Romans seven fourteen to 25. So in light of Paul's description of himself and in light of the example of the heroes of the Bible, here again is the truth statement that I am presenting to you that as you grow and develop in your Christian life, the battle with sin does not decrease. You don't leave it behind and come to a place in your life where you just no longer need to worry about that battle. But in fact, the very opposite is true, that as you grow in your Christian life, Maturity, that what happens is the battle with sin heats up, intensifies. Here's the second point of clarity that I want to make about my interpretation of Romans 7, 14 to 25. The second point of clarity is this, that the mature believer can be losing the daily battle with sin. Not just that the mature believer has to fight the daily battle with sin and will never get away from it, but in fact taking that a step further, that the believer, the, even the mature believer, can in the midst of that battle be fighting a losing battle like the one Paul describes in Romans seven fourteen to 25. Now, there are three critical aspects 
to the text here in Romans 7 that need to be understood so that that interpretation is not misunderstood and misapplied. Did that connect what I just said? In order for you to understand in a proper way and deal with in a proper way this interpretation of Romans 7, 14 to 25, that this is in fact Paul the mature believer and that that is not only true of his life as a mature believer, but the mature believer, every mature believer can be fighting a losing battle with sin. In order for you to process that properly and come to the right conclusions, you need to understand, I believe, three critical aspects of this text in Romans 7. Here's the first aspect that you need to understand. You need to understand the context of the chapter. You cannot take Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25, outside of its context and just deal with that text by itself that what you must do, what you should always do with Scripture is let context define and interpret text. And when you are dealing with such a critical passage of Scripture like this, you need to make very sure that you understand what is happening around that text in the letter. So let me show you. Romans chapter 7 is a three-part chapter. The section that we're looking at today is the last section. It then is preceded by two other sections of Scripture in Romans chapter 7. And here is the great theme of the seventh chapter of Romans. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, to the believers there, to help them to understand what place the law of God now has in their life. Let me make that more specific. Paul is writing to the believer to explain to them what the purpose of God's law is. But let me get even more specific because there is even a more precise central truth to what Paul is saying regarding the law of God here. The great theme and key truth of Romans 7 is that Paul is teaching us what the law of God was never intended to do. In fact, not only what God never intended to do with the law, but what the law is impotent, is powerless to do. And here is what the law is powerless to do. The message of Romans 7 The law of God cannot make you holy. The law of God cannot make you spiritually mature. And so here Paul is teaching this lesson throughout Romans chapter 7 in the first two sections, keep that in context. Then he comes to this 
final section. And here is what he does. He illustrates the truth that he has been making. And he says, let me show you this in vivid color by pointing at my own life. Here I am, a mature believer, and here is my story. I find myself not doing the good I want to do and doing the very evil that I do not want to do. I, who know the law of God inside and out, who grew up since early childhood studying the law, who studied under the greatest teacher of the law in the nation of Israel of his day, who was a diligent, Paul, a diligent man that poured himself into an understanding of God's law. And he is saying here at the end of Romans chapter 7, the truth of what I have been teaching you in the first two sections of Romans 7, I'm going to illustrate my own life and show you the reality of it in a mature believer, me. I find myself doing what I should not be doing and I know that I shouldn't and I can't get done the things that I know that I should be doing that God's law tells me to do. Do you see how the context there perfectly fits and helps explain the text? Now, let me give you the second thing that you need to understand about Romans 7 to properly interpret this passage of Scripture. The picture that Paul paints of himself here has one character in it. Who is the character? Just look at those verses, 14 to 25. What comes up over and over and over again? I. You see, what is painfully clear from the text is that Paul is writing the story about Paul himself and only Paul. And so he describes this battle scene with sin that he is fighting in his own power and he is showing that as he comes at that battle, he, Paul, I, only I, fights that battle that what happens is that he loses and he loses and he loses and he loses the battle. Even a mature believer like the great apostle with all of his radical, zealous commitment and all of his great learning and veteran seasoned status as a follower and servant of Christ, he working with his own power cannot defeat the intense daily battle with sin. Now let me show you the third aspect about the text that you need to see that will complete this understanding and help you to properly interpret and not misuse this interpretation. I mentioned this briefly last Sunday. The point here is what the text does not say. What is it that is painfully missing from Romans 7, 14 to 25. The Spirit of the living God. 
is missing. You see, it is all a battle that Paul is fighting by himself. Nowhere does the Spirit of God come into the equation and the believer, immature or mature, fighting in his own power against this intense war with sin every single time is going to come up on the losing side of that battle. Do not have the power in self, in personal will, personal determination to do what they know to do and not do what they know that they shouldn't. Paul said, that's my story. So that all three of those together, working seamlessly around the same theme, brings us to the conclusion in Romans chapter 7 that what Paul is saying is that the mature believer, number one, is a person man or woman who is going to continually fight the battle against sin their life long from moment of new birth to end of days. It's going to be the reality. And not only that, but that battle is going to intensify. And not only that, not only that, but even as a mature believer, if they fight the battle at any time in their own power, they're going to begin to lose the battle against sin. So that the story of Romans seven fourteen to 25 is going to be their story. Let me say that another way. They may be living in the power of the Spirit, depending upon the Spirit, and living in victory and having a great run, but at any moment they are in danger or have the potential of being lifted up in themselves, of setting aside their total dependency upon the Spirit of God and trying to fight that power upon their own resources, their own knowledge. And the moment, I believe what Paul is saying, is the moment that the mature believer does that, they're going to begin to lose the battle of sin. That's what I believe is a proper interpretation of Romans seven fourteen to 25. Finally, one more point of clarification. Again, here is what I am not saying, okay? I am not saying that the mature believer is going to consistently lose the daily battle with sin. Let me state that another way. I am not saying that it is the normative pattern that the mature believer fighting this lifetime intense battle with personal sin, it's not the normative pattern that they should lose and lose and lose and lose. Like the picture painted in Romans seven fourteen to 25. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that that will be the case if they try to fight the battle as Paul 
painted there in 714 to 25 with I at the center, with themselves and their own power trying to come against personal sin. That any time we try to do that, immature believer or mature believer, we do not have what it takes to beat that daily battle with sin. That can only be done through the total dependency on the spirit of the living God. Now let's move on. Why is that true? If that is an accurate interpretation and understanding of this controversial passage of Scripture, why is that truth the truth? Why is it that a mature Christian can lose this regular battle against sin if fought alone? Paul told us right here in the text. Let me show you why. First of all, Romans seven fourteen. Paul wrote and said, but I am of the flesh. Again, this is Paul explaining his reality as a Christian in the moment of writing. Romans seven eighteen, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. What I want you to see here is that Paul is making it very clear that the problem lies in his flesh. That where the battle is being fought and lost is in his flesh. But now watch what he does. He goes on to say, listen, he goes on to say, this is where it gets deep and complicated. Please try to follow along very closely. Spirit of the living God, give us understanding here. Paul goes on to say that the flesh is not the real I. It's not the real me. You see, he had been talking about and laid in place a very foundational truth in Romans chapter 6 that he is building upon here. Let me just remind you of that foundational truth. Paul had told us in Romans 6 that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that what took place in that moment that moment called justification or salvation, that what took place in that moment when we put our faith all in what Christ had done on the cross and in his resurrection, that what happened is that we were, by the Spirit of God, united to Jesus Christ. Not theoretically, not just as a concept or an idea, but that in reality... That what took place in our real being in the spiritual realm is that we were joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. We were put into Him. United to Him. 
He taught that over and over again in Romans 6. Again, that's the context of what we're looking at here in Romans 7. So that what that means is this, and he explained this in detail. He worked that out very specifically. He said, here is what that means. It means that whatever is true of Christ is now true of you because you're united to him. And then he described what that truth is. And it is this. Just as Jesus died to sin on the cross, when you accepted him as your Savior and were justified, you were united to him in a very real way. And what happened to you in that moment is that you died to sin just like Jesus. You died to sin. Do you know what jurisdiction sin has over you? It has jurisdiction over you as long as you are alive because the penalty of sin is death. But when there has been a death, the jurisdiction ends because the penalty has been satisfied. So that when you were united to Christ in justification, what took place is that you died to sin. But not only that, get ready for the good news that just as Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead in a very real way, again, not theory, not just distant illustration, but in an actual reality, you were united to Christ so that his resurrection from the dead became yours. That it actually happened to you like it happened to Jesus. That is the reality of your spiritual condition now that you have been justified. That is how God sees you in his perfect view as a justified believer. He sees that you have been united to Christ in justification. You have died to sin. You have been resurrected to a new life. Hallelujah. So what in the world is the problem? Here is the problem. You see, Romans 7, 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He is a new creation. As a follower, so are you. And in your inner being, you love God. And you love the truth of God. And your mind and your heart and your will wants to do the things that God wants you to do. And you don't want to do the things that God's law says do not do. But we still have a problem. And the problem is that the reality of the Christian life and the new inner being is that that inner being still has a remnant of the old self. And the remnant of the old self is this thing that he is calling here the flesh. It is the thing that he called in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, the mortal body. It's that thing that he's going to call at the end of the chapter, this body of death. There is this remnant that is still connected even though we have been recreated as followers of Christ. Even though justification has happened and been completed, there is still a remnant, a connection. There is still an old set of clothes that is wrapped around our brand new being. 
our brand new identity. So that the inner being of our new creation loves God and longs for his truth. But the remnant of the old self, the flesh, loves sin and what it offers. So that there is this battle that is raging. A battle that is going to continue to rage. As long as this body of flesh, this mortal body, this body of death is still connected to this brand new creation, this new inner being with a new heart and mind that are all after God. There is a problem. And what takes place, as Paul is describing it here, is that when he sins, it's not the real I. He says, it's not really me. It's not the new me, the new identity, and the new being that has been created through this union with Christ. That's not the one that's sinning. It's that old self. It's that body of flesh that I cannot shake. That's what's doing the sin. And in that old body, that old flesh, not one good thing dwells. That's what he said. Not one good thing dwells. That is why, ladies and gentlemen, that Paul comes to the 24th verse of Romans chapter 7 and he cries out in desperation. Listen to the accurate, precise description. Who wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you hear what he's asking? Oh, I've got this new inner being that delights in the law of God. I have no problem with the desire to do what is right. And I even know what that should be. But I've got this body of death this flesh, this mortal body. And right there, that's the beachhead where sin comes in and seeks to get a foothold and seeks to build a stronghold so that the battle rages on. And so his question is, who is going to deliver me From this body of death. I can't deliver myself. It is hopeless for me to try to do that. Who will deliver me? But ladies and gentlemen. He's not asking the question. (laughs) 
He's not asking the question because he is oblivious of the answer. He's asking the question so that he can set it up. So that he can tell us what the answer is. For without a pause, immediately he responds with the answer to his own question. And he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me give you the cliff notes on that. Here's the deliverer that can deliver me from this body of death. It's Jesus. And only Jesus who can get that done. I know who the deliverer is. And oh, how I need him to deliver me. So here's what I want to do in the final portion of this message. I want to look at this great deliverance that Paul asks the question about in verse 24 and gives the answer to in verse 25. Specifically, here's what I want to do. I want to show you Paul's answer that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The one and only Savior who provides one salvation, an eternal salvation. But here's what I want to show you, that that salvation comes with three deliverances. That there is one Savior, Jesus Christ, Romans 7, 25. And that one Savior, Jesus Christ, provides one great salvation. But that great salvation incorporates three great deliverances. Let me show each one of them to you. First of all, apart of salvation, there is the deliverance of a past nature so that it could be said like this, that we were delivered from God's wrath. You see, in the grand scope of salvation, one of the things that includes, one of the deliverances that is included in the great scope of salvation that Jesus provides is that Jesus, at the moment of salvation, when you are united to Him, that's justification. At that moment, you were delivered from the wrath of God. You see, Romans chapter 1 through 5, that's what Paul is writing about. He says in Romans chapter 1, right after his introductory comments in the 18th verse, he begins to talk about the wrath of God. And he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he begins to 
draw circles around humanity and to show who is all included in that wrath of God. And he says, first of all, the pagan, the openly rebellious are included, but he doesn't stop there. Then he says, the self-righteous are also included. Those who maybe are a little more moral on the external appearance, but who look down their noses at others from their moral position, they're also included because they as well are guilty of sin and therefore are under the wrath of God and then there's one more group of humanity in order to make it comprehensively true of all he says not only are those two groups guilty but in fact the religious the spiritual person is guilty and I think he teaches there that they're the most guilty because they're the ones that have the law of God that know the truth and yet they sin as well therefore the blanket of God God's wrath is spread over all of humanity, all of them under the wrath of God. And what happens at the moment of justification is that you are united with Christ since penalty has been paid. You have been crucified with Christ to sin and resurrected to a brand new life with Christ so that from that point and forevermore you have been delivered from the wrath of God. And the reason that you have is that what Jesus drunk on the cross was the full cup of the wrath of God for sin to the last drop. There is no more payment to be made so that if you come to him as your savior and you say, Jesus, I believe in what you did save even me, then the full wrath of God is satisfied on your behalf so that the first great deliverance of salvation is yours and you have been delivered from the wrath of God. Let me show you now the second great deliverance. Because that's not the deliverance. That first one, that's not the deliverance that Paul is calling for in Romans 7.25, is it? It can't be. Because that's already true of Paul. And yet he's saying, who's going to deliver me? So he's not talking about justification and the deliverance from the wrath of God. Let's look at the second great deliverance that is a part of this great scope of salvation. Not only were we delivered from God's wrath, but as followers of Christ, as those who have been justified, we are being delivered in the present from the reign of sin, R-E-I-G-N. We are being delivered. We have been delivered from the wrath of God, but once that has been accomplished, never more to come under that guilt in the present day, in the present life, as you're living the Christian life right now, what's taking place is that your Savior is still providing a deliverance. And the deliverance that He's providing in the present is that He is delivering you from the reign of sin in your life. Let me just give you a few truths now to highlight that. I got to do these very fast. A few truths to highlight that in the battle with sin. 
Now, we're talking about sanctification here. The first deliverance was justification. The second deliverance here is sanctification. It's your spiritual growth in more holiness and more Christ-like character. Listen to what the Bible teaches about the battle with sin for the believer. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Just pause there for a moment. How strong is the Lord? Church, how strong is the Lord? All strength, omnipotent. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Does that sound like a continually defeated situation? Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Does that sound like a continually defeated position? No, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you can continually be defeated in your Christian life. No, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That does not sound to me like a normative pattern of continual defeat. Does it to you? Let's go to another truth. That we're to fight this battle humbly. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For listen, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How much of a chance do you have to get it done yourself? Zero. Do you need to give your best effort? Yes. But what is all of your success going to depend upon? It's this, that God in his power, in his presence works in you both to will. That means to even want to do what you should be doing and then to act. That means to follow through and get it done according to his good purpose. In other words, whatever you get accomplished in the Christian life, every success The glory goes to God. The glory goes to God. So you need to fight the battle with sin humbly. Let me give you a third truth. No temptation is unbeatable. No temptation is unbeatable. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Let me just read that again. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You see, God has the enemy and his forces on a limited leash. He gives him some running room, but he says this far and no more. So that what he allows is he allows the enemy some running room. But he does it. He does it 
So that as you're faced with that temptation and he gives you a way out, there is a message sent to those around you who are watching. And if no one is watching, to the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, a message is being sent that God and his power have invaded life and are giving the victory right here in the present right now. To God be the glory. Folks, that is overwhelming to me. Let me give you two more truths about the battle with sin for the believer. Oh, and what a great truth this is. We have all that we need to live in present victory over sin. We have all that we need. That is said in so many places in Scripture. Let me give you the great statement of it in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Again, what that verse is saying is that God in his power has given you everything you need as a believer to live in victory over sin. He has not left anything short but has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. And what is the secret to that? It's your knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It is your relationship to him. It's your intimacy with him. It's you growing closer and closer to him as he is revealing himself to you. That you enter into that and grow in intimacy with him. And as you are growing there, what is taking place is that before you is set the ability, the resources, the tools with which you can walk through every temptation in victory if you use them. Final truth. Great truth. Ultimate victory is assured. Ultimate victory is assured. Philippians 1, 6, Paul said this with deep conviction. And I am sure of this, he wrote, that he, talking about God, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I know that I know that I know. That if your creator, the God of heaven, sent his holy perfect son down to die for your sin and to rise again in victory, 
And then he revealed his son to you and gave you the faith to believe so that you responded in faith and were justified. And he has now declared you to be united to his son now and forevermore that that God who did that is going to continue the process and will not stop short of taking you all the way to glory. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. That's what Paul says. I am absolutely sure of it. And folks, so am I. So am I. So here is what we've got in this one great salvation with one great Savior. We've got so far two great deliverances. We've got a deliverance from the wrath of God. That is a deliverance that has already been accomplished if you are in Christ. Secondly, there is a deliverance that is currently taking place against the reign of sin in your life so that you don't have to live as a normative pattern of your Christian life, the picture in Romans 7, 14 to 25. But here is what I want to say, like I said about the first deliverance, that this is not the deliverance either that Paul is talking about in Romans seven twenty five. He wasn't referring to justification, the first deliverance, and he wasn't referring to sanctification, the second great deliverance. Because what he says in Romans 7, 25 is a present tense question. Who will deliver me? 7, 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I've already been delivered in the inner being. I already have a brand new creation New heart and mind for God, loving the law of God, desiring to do His will. But I got this remnant. I've got this connection, this thing that I can't shake from my old existence that I cannot get rid of. Oh, who is it that's going to, in the future, deliver me? If the question was stated in a future tense, doesn't the answer then also need to be in the future tense? And of course it does. So that Romans chapter 7 verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, is Paul saying, one day in the future, here is what I know. I know that my one great Savior who provided an initial deliverance for me from the wrath of God and who is providing in the present a deliverance for me from the reign of sin is one day in the future going to complete the great work of salvation and he is going to provide a third great deliverance and here is the deliverance that he is going to provide for me. He's going to deliver me from this body of death. 
the flesh, the mortal body that I cannot shake, that gives this beachhead for sin, that causes the daily continual struggle and the battle. I'm going to have to fight it until my final breath. But when Jesus Christ returns and I see him as he is, what happens at that moment is that I am going to be changed. The complete Full, comprehensive salvation that Jesus provides is going to now be mine. And the third great deliverance is going to surface as my reality. And the body of death will be gone forevermore. Let me show you the answer that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth saying that very thing, talking about the day when Jesus would return. He wrote to the church of Corinth in chapter 15, verses 51 to 55, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed for this perishable body this body of death this flesh this mortal body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, Where is your sting? It's gone, folks, because the body of death has been shed. That remnant is gone. The old clothes of that old existence are no longer yours. And what's going to happen in that third great deliverance is that just like you got a new inner being and a heart and soul after God that loves God and the things and truth of God, you're going to get an imperishable, immortal body that's going to not compete with, but perfectly complement and agree with the new inner being that you already have so that they work in perfect cooperation together so that your reality and glory will be this. No longer are you going to want to do the sin. No longer will it be possible for you to do the sin, but you will live forevermore the battle behind you in an ascending reality of victory once and forever through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So application question is the cry of Romans chapter 7 verse 24. Paul's desperate cry. Is that your cry? I mean are you here this morning 
saying, wretched man, wretched woman that I am. And why am I wretched? Because I do the very things that I do not want to do. And I do not do the things that I know full well that I should be doing. That sin keeps rising up in victory. It's not really I who am doing them. It's the sin that's living in my mortal body. But oh, what a wretched man or woman I am. I can't get the victory. Church. I would be so embarrassed to tell you how many times in my mature Christian life that has been my wretched cry. But what I want to say to you and what I believe Paul is leading up to say, remember the context, we haven't got there yet, but this is a lead in to Romans 8, where in Romans 8, he's going to contrast this picture with the life lived in the power of the spirit that's lived in victory. So he's getting us ready for that. And so what I want to say to you this morning is this. If you're here and you're crying out, oh, wretched man or woman that I am. The sin is getting the better of me. That what you must do is understand that you can in no way fight the battle against daily sin in your own power. It cannot be done. And if you ever begin to do that, you will begin to lose. Nor can you even use the holy and precious word of God to get that done for you. Because the law is impotent and powerless to sanctify you. Message of Romans 7, that what you need is absolute, total dependency upon the Spirit of the living God, moment by moment, to where you stop depending at all in your own power and you are continually leaning in to the Lord Jesus Christ and the means of grace that he gives through his spirit like prayer and the study and application of the word and the fellowship of believers and the service to the saints that you lean in in absolute dependency upon the Spirit in the means of grace that He has given you in which He wants to use to empower you to live in victory. You've got to come to that point of absolute desperation where you say, I give up trying to do this in my own power. And I throw myself wholeheartedly upon the person and power of the Spirit of the living God. Would you please stand? As the worship team plays, I, let's leave this in the hands of God. I want to go and pray. I want to pray for more victory more dependency upon the Spirit. I'm asking you, would you do the same? Would you be honest with yourself 
about the battle with sin that you're fighting? And would you cry out in desperation to the Lord, oh, wretched person that I am, spirit of a living God, invade my present with your power to live in victory. Come as we sing.